Radio Mano Papachango. gentlemen welcome to another edition of tangentially speaking this is a very special episode my guest today is a young lady by the name of anya Katz, also known as anya kates <laughs> you have to bury that last one <laughs> uh i had known anya Katz for a month or so um we were neighbors in Topanga, and uh, it's a long story, which we won't tell here, but we basically met because you ordered a t-shirt, and my mother said, oh, look, someone from Topanga ordered a t-shirt, and being the good son I am, I said, oh, let me just take it. You don't need to go to the mail, to the uh, post office for that, so I hand-delivered it and uh, to your, <clears throat> to your um, mailbox, which I think is illegal, by the way. Really? Yeah, you're not allowed to open people's mailboxes if you're not an official mail, mail carrier. Yeah, so I think I broke the law there. Hmm. Uh, allegedly. I'm not admitting to that officially. <laughs> this may have been what happened. I don't know. It was a long time ago. <clears throat> anyway, uh, the oh, what was the story? I think my name. Was that where the you were name, going? Yeah, that I had known you for a month before I listened to your amazingly interesting podcast called A Millennial's Guide to Saving the World. And I heard you say, welcome to another edition of Millennial's Guide to Saving the World. I'm your host, Anya Cates. And I was like, what? Cates? Why didn't you tell me? Ah, because you were right. Isn't that weird? I miss, I and my entire family mispronounce our name. Intentionally, right? Because it was Dutch and you wanted to de-Dutchify it. But no. also, I have this friend Hunter Motts, N-A-A-T-S, and you're Kotz, K-A-A-T-S. It's like, yeah, it wasn't us intentionally i believe it's when my family came to america from the netherlands and they you know when they came through ellis island or wherever it was if they couldn't pronounce something or didn't understand something they'd change the spelling or the pronunciation so right. it was it was pronounced kate's for many generations prior to me saying kate's right but no it's it's absolutely supposed to be Kotz. so your grandmother wait <clears throat> no your grandmother's from the other side of the i'm thinking of your grandmother or the publisher oh yeah other what, side what was her last name um well her married name is uh arden but arden, it was right. arnoff originally right. and that was another one so that they changed and that was russian yeah 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 um anyway in any case Welcome. This, this has been a long time coming. Yeah. Um, we should tell people where we are because they might hear like we sound strangely relaxed. <laughs> so strange. <laughs> yeah, we're on the Kukanusa Lake. Kukanusa Lake, which isn't really a lake. It's a reservoir. Yeah. Um, which I keep calling a river. So. <laughs> well, and it is a river. I mean, yeah. it was a river until they put a dam on it. Uh, but it's, uh, it's, it's interesting cause it's very Northwest Montana if you're looking at a map. Um, and it took me a while, it took me a day or two before I realized that the name Kukanusa 
is a conglomeration of the Kootenai Indians, who uh, I guess this was their um, area, and uh, Canada and USA. Yeah. Canusa. It's like that coaling A, coaling B thing. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Coalinga. Yeah. Coalinga. Yeah. Uh, I think I've told that story, but people who don't know, there's a place in California called Coalinga. It's on the on the five going up from L.A. to San Francisco. And, uh, of course, everyone thinks that's an Indian name. But um, I think it was Malcolm. Um, I forget Malcolm's last name. Fleischner? Anyway, he uh, he's been on the podcast a couple of times. And he explained to me that it was... Uh, coaling station along the railway line, and that was coaling A. So it's where the the f- steam train stopped to load up on coal, and that area was called coaling A. And somehow over the years it became Coalinga. So yeah, we're on the Kukanusa <laughs> Reservoir, which uh, spans the border. I wonder how they uh, enforce border control in the middle of a. Big I was lake. thinking the same thing. Just like, like a buoys. I don't know about how that, how enforcing that is, but I'm sure they they mark it at least. Yeah, some sort of motion detector or something. Um, yeah, so we are on this little peninsula that we discovered, um, and it is really sweet here. Yeah, there's like a built-in wooden table that someone put the yeah built between a couple of pine trees it's pretty it's pretty luxe we've got our hammock set up we haven't set up our slack line oh no we should yeah um scarlett Johansson is uh just right in front of me up on the hill there <laughs> amazing so we're avoiding the virus is what we're doing <clears throat> pretty effectively thus far i think so yeah yeah um so I guess, what is it that we're going to talk about? <laughs> it's your job. I'm just relaxing. <laughs> you're, you're the guest. <laughs> I have to drive, huh? Um, I mean, I, I, I think uh, you are someone who has, I would have to say, I hang out with a lot of people who think about sexuality and gender and um, how men and women relate to each other and, you know, what's innate and what's learned. and But I don't know anyone who thinks about these things as deeply as you do, except maybe me and uh, possibly Aaron, yeah. uh, your co-host, or do you call her a co-hostess? What, what do you do with host and hostess? Ugh, all of that stuff. Yeah. I just uh, use the masculine terminology because I'm sort of unbothered which is a masculine trait supposedly (laughs) although men do get bothered Uh, but my point was that you you think about these things a lot and uh explore them in your podcast and and in various forms of research that you do uh so i guess that's an area that we you know we've often been sitting by the fire in the van talking we're like damn we should have just recorded that that would be like all the time all the time yeah yeah yeah. so uh let's talk about the podcast first you do two podcasts yeah uh millennials guide to saving the world which is your solo thing which you've been doing how long now it's like almost two years what why'd you do that what what led you to um well i went joe rogan was making lots of money you wanted to get in (laughs) there yeah 
exactly thought it was a good business plan um no uh i just went through a really challenging period of time in my life um like 2017 2018 and um i i had for a long time sort of like had this inner identity or inner passions and inner way of looking at the world that wasn't reflected in my outer life which for various reasons, I think I couldn't find a, I thought I would never be able to find a place for myself in the world. I was just too weird and thought about strange things. And um, so when I went through this hard time, I, I basically left that former life. And within that couple years where I was sort of living as a blank slate, I guess, um, I was trying to think of like what I want to do with my life and at first um at first a millennial's guide to saving the world I thought would be a subtitle to a book mm. um but then I realized I didn't necessarily have the patience to like wait around and write the book and I had just started listening to podcasts honestly in that period of time Did you have the title? The Or just the subtitle? Just the subtitle. <laughs> mm, it's an excellent <laughs> subtitle. <laughs> I got that's as far as I got with the book. <laughs> um, yeah, or or maybe the title, but I'm pretty positive. I just thought it would be a subtitle. Um, and uh, yeah, so I, I I realized like I I felt very like I needed to say something urgently. And around this time, Trump had just got elected, and the Me Too movement was going on, and so many of my opinions were reflective of those events. And so I started listening to podcasts and I knew I was really comfortable talking uh, and I knew I had a lot to say and that I wasn't afraid to get on a microphone and talk to people. So yeah, I decided to start the podcast and I I think I had the idea in like the spring of, or the, yeah, it took almost a year. I guess it was like late 2017 mm. and I ended up launching it in late 2018. Um, so, yeah, I, I felt like there were several different things going into it. I was always really embarrassed by because of my age. I was embarrassed for being a millennial. What year were you born? 88. Um, and I would, always, I would always have older friends and just be hanging out with older people all the time. And I would try all these different things like how can I fool them to make them think that I'm older, which was ridiculous because I think I, I look even younger than I am. Um, so there was a lot of shame around that. And then not only was there a lot of shame around it, but I also, I mean, maybe that's why there was shame. I just didn't relate to anything that was ever said about millennials that we were triggered and sensitive and we didn't want to work very hard. And um, this whole PC culture thing that was surrounding millennials, I just was like, that's not me. So what if I created a podcast that had millennial in the title, which was kind of embarrassing, but I just thought like, I'm going to at least try to reclaim this if, you know, for myself, if not whomever else agrees. So um, I just wanted to give voice to a different type of young person who I thought existed, but who might be being silenced by sort of the more conventional realms of expression or accepted. Do you find that the sort of conventional <clears throat> description of millennials is inaccurate 
mainly for you or do you find it to be inaccurate for people your age that you know? Um, I think it's inaccurate for a lot of people my age. I think, you know, the mainstream media tends to showcase the far left of something and the far right of something. So I do think that there are people my age who very much subscribe to PC culture and feeling, um, you know, triggered and sensitive. I mean, I'm not suggesting that doesn't exist, but I think there's a huge group of people, I would argue probably more people than not, who don't agree with those things, who do feel differently, but who feel more fearful to say that in the public realm because especially now everything is just so toxic and you know you're just going to be canceled so might as well keep it to yourself um yeah one of the the inspirations for starting the podcast is during this period of time i started going on facebook and like posting facebook rants which was a colossal waste of time but what was interesting about it was that I kept getting all these messages from people privately. Like, not a lot of people would comment on the post publicly, but they'd Mm. send me messages, like direct messages saying, hey, by the way, thank you so much for your post. I don't really have the balls to say any of that like you do, but I totally agree. Mm. And I'm just really grateful that you said it because... What kind of things were you saying? Oh, I was like criticizing the Me Too movement, basically. Um, What's your critique? Well, like most things, I just thought it wasn't being looked at in the nuanced way that it should be. I felt like women weren't necessarily taking, and of course, this is obviously there's a spectrum here from the Harvey Weinsteins, you know, being date raped and drugged to having a bad date. And so more so on the bad date side, um, I just thought that women were not taking responsibility not really admitting to any agency they had or have. Um, And I just, I felt like a lot of the situations that had been proposed as abusive were similar to situations I'd been in, but it was impossible, impossible for me in my own life to look at those situations and not see how I participated in them. And so it's not that the men were, you know, perfect (laughs) expressions of, you know, uh, respect and humanity or something, but it takes two to tango. So what may have happened in those situations if the women like stopped going back to the dude's house or um, like what, what kind of responsibility do do women have in these situations? Right. So you're talking about, you know, some situations on the sort of Aziz Ansari yeah. side of the spectrum, right. not, not women who are actually no. um, manipulated by men who have power over them, right. uh, you know, through their workplace or um, physically or drugging them or, you know, any kind of, you're just talking about essentially someone who changes her mind. Right. And chooses not to leave and then later regrets it and calls Blames the guy. Right. Yeah, well, honestly, I think the first time, and this was really on early on in the Movie 2 movement, was the Louis C.K. situation, which it was very clear from the women who reported on the story that he had asked them whether it was okay and that they said yes. He didn't physically restrain them. He didn't make them stay. And, of course, the reason was, well... 
I guess we're we're younger, we're in a more vulnerable position because we don't have the level of fame that you have. We're trying to get somewhere in the industry. So if we say no, would you destroy our careers or but of course that's all kind of presumptuous to assume that that's would that would be what would happen of course that does happen sometimes um so to me it wasn't like louis ck is in the right it just like why aren't we talking about the gray area here of the fact that he asked for consent and they said yes and then later got freaked out or embarrassed or felt ashamed that they'd agreed to something like that um like what's what's wrong there that these women don't feel empowered to say no or feel so disgusted with themselves for saying yes. I don't know. Yeah, that's a complicated one because, you know, it's hard to say that he didn't have power um, because those women were working in comedy and he was one of the biggest comics in the world. So it's complicated because he does have power and... Um, I, I I don't know. It, I get I always just get my mind gets twisted up in yeah. knots when I think about these things because um, I can see it from both perspectives, I guess. But but I do kind of feel like if you uh, it, it's like I don't know. It's like how I've, I've talked about the different legal systems, right? Like the legal system where. I mean, it's illegal to to drive after drinking pretty much everywhere, but uh, it's the difference between setting up roadblocks to catch people versus pulling people over who, you know, blow through a stop sign or, or, you know, don't use their turn signal and you have some reason to suspect that they may be, Mm -hmm. you know, probable cause, I guess, is what I'm talking about. Um, It kind of feels like... If he had, if if one of those women got up and said, hey, I'm not into this, I'm leaving, and then, you know, two weeks later, she was fired from writing on a show that he was directing, then I'd say there's the crime. That's, right, yeah. That's not cool. Agreed. But him saying, hey, I'm into this, are you guys into this? And they say, yeah, and then it happens, and then two years later or something you're like oh that was that was horrible i i don't see the crime there I, I, you know unless you can show that he fired you or you know there was some negative effect on your career but if his thing was like oh i'm into this are you into it no okay see ya see you at work monday you know like where's the crime i i don't know i, I understand it's awkward and weird um but you know, talk, we were talking about this Chris D'Elia situation. It's the same kind of thing. Like, I've read, I, I haven't read everything, but I've read, I think, you know, maybe three or four articles that seem to lay out in a very accusatory fashion the worst things he did. And I don't see any crime anywhere. I see some creepy behavior. I see some stuff that, um, you know, if... I mean, the worst the worst thing he did, as far as I'm concerned, is that this chick contacted him and said she wanted to hang with him. And she was like, totally like, hey, you know, I'll, I want to suck your dick and I'm not going to make your life complicated. Just next time you're in town, you know, let's hang out. And he was like, yeah, cool. 
And then, uh, I don't know, at some point he was like, hey, how about if you suck my friend's dick? Kind of like, you know, I don't know if it was like the green room or <laughs> exactly how that was. <laughs> and that's, I mean, look, that's, for most people listening to that, they're going to say, that's creepy. But let's not forget, this woman wrote to him and was like, hey, dude, I love your shit. I'd love to suck your dick. So right. we're already in that realm. Yeah, and and, you know, then it gets into like, she's an adult when is someone an adult fine that's a debatable issue but yeah. i just think like women think what they're doing is empowering themselves and what i see them doing is disempowering themselves like i don't right. like you really do have the ability and especially now like our mothers and their mothers you know this is getting easier and easier for us to actually have our own form of power and to feel powerful and to live a life in which we get to choose what we do and whether we get married or not and whether we have kids or not. And so to act as if, you know, someone's just deciding for us or there are these big, you know, I don't know, overarching power structures that are controlling us like puppets now i yes they were i think that is like i always understand the intention behind these people i understand the intention behind the in me too movement i understand where the anger comes from and the rage and the desire to break down structures that are harmful i just don't think it's being done in the right way and yeah. i think it's being done in a way that disempowers women and takes away their agency i know you love the word agency so i'm just gonna love it keep using it <laughs> modeling agency <laughs> travel agency uh the you know this leads us to the question of justice versus compensatory yeah, injustice totally right and and we get to that point in discussions of of racism colonialism class division everything it's yeah. it's a big distinction right and and the point i've made on this podcast and elsewhere is that the American criminal justice system is not about justice. It's about compensatory injustice. It's about revenge. Right. And it gets really complicated when you're taking your revenge um, on a class of people or a race of people, right? Like, you know, you know, my my parents were killed by, you know, black people who broke into the house and now I hate all black people. Like that. Right. I understand how that works, but it doesn't make any sense at all. And, you know, this thing, you know, as you said, it's getting easier for women because of the sacrifices and the struggles of of women and some men over the last, you know, 50, 60 years. Um, and so to exact justice against people who you know, weren't alive then. Aziz Ansari, you know, he never was a madman, you know? He he was never one of those guys. Yeah. And, um, you know, and Louis C.K., I mean, his comedy is so much about, you know, his, his, the stand-up special he did just before all this shit happened was so much about sort of um, putting himself in the position of women. I remember he said, he had this whole thing where he's like, man, you know, we don't respect women enough for their courage. You know, they go home with a guy after a date. That's like me getting into a cage with a bear <laughs> and just hoping it won't hurt me. You know, it's like, I mean, he was really keyed into that. And yeah, it's, it. I don't know. Chris Lee is different. I, I mean, I don't see him as like defender of women, but I do see him as kind of like 
you know, like, hey, I'm a creep, you know, like that's yeah. part, of, part of his bit. And so the difference between criminal behavior and creepiness, I think, is is what I was trying to get at earlier. Yeah. Creepiness is a very subjective thing. Some people think anyone older than any man older than 35 who has any kind of sexual vibe at all is a creep. Yeah. Well, what the fuck? Yeah. And it's just not I mean, I think I'm someone in general that's very focused on okay, and then what? It's like I'm a very sort of solutions-focused type of person. So, sure, like, maybe Chris D'Elia is kind of creepy, and yeah, like, Louis C.K. has weird jerking-off <laughs> kinks. But, like, okay, so so what are we going to do about that? Like, right. what might have occurred had one of those women said no and walked out? What might have occurred if one of those women said yes, felt really fucking weird about it, and then went back to him and had a conversation about it? Right. Or just talked to her fucking therapist to, like, explore her own, right. you know, issues around sexuality and shame and all of that stuff. Like... You know, and in terms of the compensatory injustice, you know, the other thing is this woman who's in the room with Louis C.K., you know, there are women who are not like me, who are not white and privileged in the way that I do, that I do think are much more controlled by and still existing within the framework of like, well, I can't use leave this abusive guy because I, you know, have five kids and no job prospects. Um so, but for me, as a white person, let's say with privilege, like how could I, how could I not use that for good? And I don't feel like pointing fingers at someone and saying you're a creep and therefore have no right to exist. I just don't think that's practical or um, a solution whatsoever. Uh, and I think it's also the other thing that's that I find that I have a lot of criticism for is that what we're trying to do, like the larger framework of this is break down, I think, patriarchal abuse. And I think controlling, blaming, you know, kind of enslaving, uh, using anger. These are all very patriarchal type uh, types of um, uh, emotions or strategies. So how is it beneficial like, if women are mad at men for being, like, petulant little boys, why would you act like a petulant little boy as a way to solve the problem? Isn't what we're trying to do big picture is deconstruct uh, <laughs> deconstruct the, you know, the larger framework for what's going on? And yeah. I think what we're in, like what you said, we're just, it's like, oh, yeah, two wrongs make a right you yelled at me i'm gonna yell at you like what's what's the more what's the more matriarchal response to this what's the more feminine response to well, this what is it i think it's I, I think it's like listening and empathy and um yeah vulnerability i don't think um canceling someone is a very vulnerable act i think like to me when this thing happened to louis ck i like literally felt a lot of sadness around what he might be going through. And I just wanted to like, let's, can we talk about it? Like, let's just sit and talk about it. Like this has to have been more complex than yeah. how we're treating it. Um, and that's hard. And again, that's a privileged, I'm coming from a privileged position, but that's how I, and I've been in these situations before these types of situations. Comedians jerking off in front oh, of yeah, you. Yeah. So many. It's um, a funny thing about comedians. <laughs> 
Um, they're always on stage. <laughs> no, but these sort of, you know, you it's it they're nuanced and you, you there's some power involved and some sexual thing involved and it's hard to kind of distinguish between what's them, what's me, what's happening here. And so I, I've felt a lot of rage at times and anger and frustration. Um, but for me personally, I've just felt like the more practical solution is not to blind myself from everything else by living in a place of just pure rage and anger. Um, you can have the anger. Like I always say, like anger is a bridge, not a parking lot. Like mm. use the anger to get somewhere. But that's. And then let go. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Uh, let's let's flesh out a little bit of what you said earlier. Uh, I want to go further into your podcast, but the context in which it arose. You you referred to um, kind of a false life that you were living, uh, and a difficult time that you were going through. Do you want to be more specific about either or both of those things? Sure. Um... Yeah, so I was basically in, like, non-stop monogamous relationships from 16 to this point, 27, I guess, 28. Um, and I had met someone who I ended up marrying when I was 22. And, um, yeah, it's it's hard. It's I mean, I think I've always, and this goes back further, like, we can talk about my dad, but I've always been kind of... I think I always just felt like an alien. Like I just, the things I wanted to talk about, the things I thought about, um, the ways I looked at the world never seemed to align with anybody. And uh, I think I also am someone who I think has like a lot of relationship stamina. And also I think, you know, at the time, unexplored issues around codependency and stuff. Um and I really wanted to be in a relationship. I really wanted to have a partnership. And I chose a partnership and a life um, that I thought was more plausible than the one that maybe when I was a younger kid, I thought was possible. Um, uh, you're comparing two things and I don't know what either of them are. <laughs> like, So I think I always wanted to be in some sort of... Um, you know, unconventional relationship. And like, I always make a joke like, oh, I, I think I'm, I just should, I like, I'm a hippie. I should just like be at a sex party or something. But I didn't know anyone in my life that um, could exemplify the type of life that I wanted to live. So as a young person, you saw yourself in a very unconventional relationship kind of realm. Yeah, yeah. Like and Free and open yeah. and relaxed. And yeah, and I studied gender and sexuality in school. And, and talk about your dad a little bit while, um, while we're here. <clears throat> yeah, so my dad's gay, uh, and my parents were married. Um, there's an episode on my podcast with my dad. I think it's like episode 21. Um my dad was interestingly also 22 when he met my mother and this was New York in the 80s and uh, my dad really wanted an intimate emotional relationship with someone and at the time just thought it was a very similar trajectory to me actually I thought like there there's no way that I can be with a man a young man and have the type of relationship that I want not to mention it seems like all the gay dudes are dying right now um, so 
I should probably figure out how I might be able to be straight and be in a normal relationship with a woman and have kids and live that life. So he made that decision. And then about uh, three years after I was born, uh, four years ish, he got older and met a man who uh, suddenly got four years old. <laughs> he, hate when that happens. Um, you know, at this point now he's in his late twenties, early thirties and had met some man at a conference who he knew he wasn't going to be with for the rest of his life, but who it, it made him realize he could be with a man in a mature relationship. And that kind of fucked him up. And uh, he realized, or he, he intentionally decided he could, could not pass on like disassociation and shame to his children and so made the very difficult choice to get divorced from my mom um and was in a relationship with a man shortly thereafter so they got divorced when i was five Um, but i didn't find out that he was gay until i was 10 which was i think a very um, key event in my life um, Nobody was hiding it from you. Though. No, no. My dad held. My dad lived with this guy. It was my dad's friend Sean. And he lived right near you, so you. Oh yeah, Sean around the corner. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, yeah. My dad held hands with him, kissed him. Uh, I just. It never occurred to me to think that anything was weird. I didn't have a context for it. I didn't have a word for it. Nobody told me. So it was just, okay, that's what my dad does. It's, it's weird to talk about because it seems so <laughs> strange, but I really had no idea. Um, Did you spend any time with like your dad and Sean and any of their gay friends? Um, did you see other sometimes, couples, same-sex couples? I don't know about couples. I do know that uh, they would invite some of their friends over from time to time. And maybe, I just don't remember explicitly. And I asked my dad relatively recently, like, did you try and contain your gayness around me at all? Like, did you monitor your behavior? And he said, absolutely not. I actually made a very intentional decision not to do that. I didn't want to act like I was hiding anything. Um, And their plan was just, when you ask, we'll tell her. Right. That was the plan that was sort of recommended to them by I think a lot of different therapists and uh, so um, I asked because my mom sat me down when I was 10 to ask if I had any questions about the Clinton Monica Lewinsky scandal and we talked about that for a while and then at the end of it she asked if I had any other questions and I had just had this experience maybe a couple months prior I was in a musical uh, at the theater my dad <laughs> was the artistic director for. And there's a bunch of kids in the show, and we were, like, backstage, and we went into the dressing room of the lead of the show, and there was a photo of him holding hands with a man on his mirror. And all the kids start snickering, like, oh, he's gay, he's gay, he's gay. And I I think I said something just, like, right away of, like, oh, no, but, like, that doesn't mean he's gay because he's holding hands with a man because... I saw my dad do that. And I didn't really know what gay was. Mm. It just was very clear it wasn't good, like Mm. the way that they were talking about it. So I just, I think, quickly realized, like, Anya, you should probably shut up right now. (laughs) (laughs) Like, you are giving way too much away. Um, But I never forgot it. And so at the table with my mom, I asked. And she said, yes, your dad's gay. Uh, And I... um, totally freaked out. I remember like crying and laughing at the same time. 
And you know, it just occurs to me. I, I, I've heard you tell this story before, and I yeah. know you had this association that being gay was bad. But also, I think it's important to remember the period of history. This is oh yeah, when being gay could mean a death sentence. Oh, and and not only that, but the year I found out my dad was gay was the year Matthew Shepard was murdered. Like okay. yeah, right. so, so <laughs> a lot's there's changed. No surprise that you associated being gay with being sick. Oh, yeah. Right? Maybe being bad in some yeah. way, deserving of yeah. punishment. Oh, and, yeah. You know? And faggot was used as a an insult. And right. Yeah. I, didn't, I just didn't understand what any of those things meant. The only right. association I had was that they were like bad words and bad things to be. So the I think the the moment that was so key for me in my identity and the way I look at the world was that I find out my dad's gay. And my first reaction, my mom goes like, okay, I'm going to call your dad over because he lived just down the street. And I, I really didn't want him to come over. I was very close to my dad. I really admired my dad. We had a great relationship, but I was, even at 10, legitimately concerned that he would walk in the door and have horns. I mean, that that's, I vividly remember having that fear. Actual horns. Actual horns. Like a yeah. <laughs> See, I, 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 that's what they said about Jewish. I know, people. I know. So why would your dad? Why? I, well, I don't know. I just that like horny gay guy. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> that's just where my brain went. It was like monstrous that yeah. that he would walk in and there'd be something about him that I had somehow missed this whole time right. because gay was really bad. So, so I missed something somewhere. Right. Right. Um, and so I didn't want to see him, and my mom insisted. And then my dad came in the door. He was just my regular cool dad. So then it was like, oh, okay. So if gay is bad, but my dad is gay and my dad isn't bad, then what else is the world lying about? Um, and so I think from 10 on, although I didn't have words for it, right? Like I didn't have like the idea of social constructionism. You know, I didn't know what any of those things were, but that's sort of how I looked at the world. And, and I think that's why from a very young age, I was very open-minded about most things. I was very, because I questioned everything and I think had open-minded parents. Um, it's interesting how, <clears throat> how naturally you link being open-minded with being skeptical. Yeah, yeah. Some yeah. people might see them those as opposites, right? But, but for you, obviously, they're complementary. Yeah, yeah, and and I don't. I mean, yeah, skepticism makes sense. I think I, I think it felt more just like curiosity and yeah. desire to understand and deconstruct things, right? Um, and especially as it related to labels around people or groups or those things in particular, you know, woman, man, right, gay, right. straight, black, what, white, right? What foreign, are yeah, local, domestic? What are these things? And plus, I lived abroad when I was twelve in Paris, and I think that, and we traveled a lot when we were there, so I think that led to a lot of similar questioning. Right. Um, but I, the problem was that. I thought about the world in all these sort of open-minded slash skeptical ways. I envisioned a world of people like me. And up until, you know, I was 27, I truly didn't know where those people were. Or I didn't think that that type of life was going to be a possibility. Um, so I chose a... Con you, you didn't meet people like that at Sarah Lawrence? No, because honestly, the people at Sarah Lawrence were like, 
maybe, you know, there were a lot of gay people there, but they're very much on the sort of PC <laughs> side of the spectrum, mm. like radical leftist. Right. Um, and also, I don't know, I had a, yeah, college was strange for me. I, I didn't really make a ton of friends in school. I didn't live on campus and I was working full time and I was just really into school. I just didn't really care about partying and like hanging out. I just was so fascinated by what I was learning. Right. Um, so, so, so there you are with this like very sort of radically, um, open-minded, uh, vision of what your sex and relationship life was going to be like. Yeah. But as you're maturing into that realm, you're not finding the community. No. And I think was in not the healthiest of relationships either, which I think made me have a lot less confidence than I could have had otherwise or made me feel start to feel weird shamefulness around my sexuality and you're talking about your first boyfriend yeah with whom you were in a band yeah (laughs) (laughs) do you want to do you want to skip this part (laughs) please really no No, I mean yeah we were in a band no it was that was, and you toured the country. Yeah, it was fucking great. You it was, and four dudes in a van? Yeah, it was like OG van life. Yeah. Yeah. No, that was really fun. And and there was a lot of things about that relationship that were... Uh, out of all my relationships, I actually sort of have the most respect for and appreciation for that one. I think I was probably a very like precocious, intense young girl. And my boyfriend albeit someone who struggled with depression and a lot of other psychological issues, uh, never overtly shamed me or made me feel bad about that and um, was was more curious and accepting. Uh, Quite a bit older than you. Yeah. Like eight years? Yeah. I was 16 and he was 24 when we got together and we were together for seven years. Um, and then I met someone else uh, also quite a bit older than me who was my boss. <laughs> I released originally. Um, and, uh, yeah, I think I, I was just enamored by him because I think he exhibited qualities that my first boyfriend didn't have. Um, but I just sort of got folded into, you know, our friend Kyle talks about this sometimes, like you just kind of like fall into this river and the river just pulls you, you know, it was, and and all my friends were okay so now we go to college and we get jobs and we have these relationships and people are getting married now and having kids and i knew internally i was a weirdo still um it's hard it's it's hard to talk about this cuz i do feel like for most of my 20s like my mind was completely just elsewhere like i just had blinders on and followed this path that um was not right for me and uh yeah i know it's hard to talk about but i think it's important to talk about because i think so many people go through that yes i agree and um and it's important for people who are in that position to hear other people yeah you know like people who've found their way through it and out of it because i think part of the reason that it's so um, it's so powerful is that when you're in it you don't 
you don't believe there's any other way. There are there's no other option. Otherwise, you take it. Yeah. Yeah. I always, you know, I think there was always some sort of semi subconscious little like light that was blinking Hmm. somewhere far away. And if I like in my peripheral vision and if I focused on it, I could see it really brightly. But it was also it was so far away that it was easy to just kind of turn my head enough. So I do think throughout all of these relationships, I always on some level knew this isn't right and this isn't authentic. Um, But there were so many other things that were more powerful that were preventing me from seeing that light more clearly. Um, One was my codependency issues. One was not having enough time on my own really ever because I was just in relationships from when I was 16 to even know who I was or what I liked as an adult. Uh, And the just conventional culture swirling around me. coupled with we were talking about drama of the gifted child last night i think which um, is a book which is a, a great book by alice mm-hmm. miller um that likens perfectionism and what she calls kind of grandiosity to depression that these are both avoidant mechanisms um to you know coming to terms with one owns um, one uh, your own emotions and your individuation um and i was really good at lots of things you know is successful at my career I bought a house I renovated a house I got married like from the outside it looks like I was doing all of these things that could have exemplified success or balance um but it was just a coping mechanism uh so there was that spinning out like I just didn't have enough time even to sit down and think about anything because I was so busy spinning my distractions all over the place um, so yeah, I got, I got super caught in that river and, um, yeah. <laughs> so you married at 22. Who the fuck gets married No, I didn't get at married at 22. Oh. I, I was only married for seven months, so. Oh, you we were to, met the guy yeah, when you were 22, 22 who you eventually married. Okay. Right. I got you. Yeah. Um, and so you were together how long? Mm, five, six years, maybe. Five, six yeah. years altogether. Yeah. Uh, and then you got married. Uh, I know there were some like challenges in the relationship. Yeah. You tried to. It's funny how you, you know, we always do this. Or we often do this. We like double down when when the world shows you like, hey, this this isn't working. Instead of just being like, oh, you're right, this isn't working. We double down. Like maybe it's time to get married. Oh yeah. You know, because we're going through this crisis, or maybe it's time to have a kid. You know, it's time to buy a house together. Yeah. No, it's not. Yeah. No, it's not. Well, yeah. And I I talk about this on my podcast all the time that, you know, there's some shame, I think, that we have around changing our mind or changing Mm. our path or our direction. And so I had chosen this guy to be with, you know, at 22 and, you know, uh, in the honeymoon phase was like, this is who I'm going to marry. I mean, it was a child. But like I had all these sort of fantastical ideas about what my life was going to be with him and, you know, just myself and was telling all my friends and my family. And so I felt stupid eventually, you know, when I started to realize like, oh, this is actually not what I envisioned. This is not what I projected onto this relationship. Um, 
And there felt like a lot of shame there and a lot of fear of starting over or admitting I was wrong. And I think that's definitely something that I've heard from a lot of people, young people, that once... That's the trap. Yeah. That's the trap. You realize you're on the wrong path and then getting off the path, the first step is, I'm on the wrong path. Right. Saying that to people who you think their admiration for you is based upon you always being right, when really... If they really admire you, it's it's because you have the courage to admit when you're wrong. Yeah, or there are the people that are also wildly unhappy in their relationship slash career slash life. And so you opting to make a different choice and moving on is threatening to them because they're right. tr- trying to avoid doing the same exact thing that they know they need to do. Right. Um, so I felt I think I felt a lot of that. And uh, um, do you think he felt that? Do you think he felt he was in the wrong relationship? Yeah, I think it became pretty clear eventually that I wasn't the person he thought I was. Um, and Because he didn't know what was going on inside you all this time. Or did he? No. No, I, I don't. I mean the weirdo part. The, yeah. You know, no, this... I, don't, I don't think as much. Whereas like for, for my first boyfriend, it was kind of hard to ignore because like I was studying gender and sexuality in school and like it was very much that was my life you know right. my weirdness was my life but then no but then I became like a you're working at Amazon or at uh, Whole, Whole Foods. Foods yeah I was like a, um, doing marketing for natural products companies and right. go into trade shows and going to my nine to five job and you know he was working and we were talking about the future and and yeah eventually I just kind of bubbled over, I think, and and started talking about things uh, or, um, yeah, thinking about things that I think threatened the person who he thought I was. So he felt like, wait a minute, this isn't the woman I married. Right. And then, or yeah, and we hadn't even been married yet, I don't think. But yeah, then there was a lot of sort of shaming around that. And I felt badly because I thought, you're right, I... I don't totally know how upfront I was when we got together because I really liked you and I wanted to be with you and I was just coming out of this other relationship and I was freaking 22 and an idiot. I don't know how else to say it. Like I just, I didn't know what I was doing. Um, So I do, I do think he had some ideas, uh, but... It is interesting how how this parallels your father's path. Oh, totally. And I didn't actually know how much it did until I recorded that podcast with him, like his reasons for being with my mom. So similar. It's like super the, similar. Like, you know, your father was out. It wasn't like he was, he thought he was straight. No. He didn't misrepresent himself. He knew who he was, but he didn't know how to be that. And so he chose to try to be, quote, normal, right? unquote, right? Right. And then that didn't work because he spent a few years swinging and missing and realized, like, this isn't my game. What am I doing? Yeah. And and you're right. It, I mean, the way you said it, like, he got older one day, you know? <laughs> like, four years later, he got older. Like, you, yeah. It's so interesting because, I, I mean, I look at my own life, same thing. Tw- so many people in their 20s, that's what they're doing. They're trying a life. And in a way, the worst thing that can happen is to be successful. Because <laughs> totally. then that makes it harder to admit it's the wrong life for mm-hmm. you, makes it harder to 
get out and start over again somewhere else. Yeah. Unless you're just incredibly lucky and you happen to get it right the first time. But I think very few people do. Yeah, I agree. Yeah, and even the way I think my dad and I both realized we were wrong was also by meeting someone who we both knew we weren't going to be with forever. But At he... a fucking conference. <laughs> yeah. yeah, it is. Oh, my God. I didn't even think about that. Yeah, both times at a conference. Um, yeah, and that person kind of embodied all of the lies we told to ourselves about, right. you know, I, I could never find anyone like this. I could never live a life that was different than the one I'm living. Um, and I, I, yeah, I think thankfully both my dad and I are pretty good at like once something's really shown to us, it's hard to deny anymore. Mm. Um, it was harder when I, you know, if I was just trying to imagine what my life could be or imagine what kind of relationship I could be in or who existed. But when that person was standing right in front of me, it, it was really impossible for me to continue to right. spin my lie. Yeah. So, okay. So you're in this marriage, it's not working and, 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 you know, I'm not going to ask you to get real personal about the specifics, you know, we don't need to go there, but, but then you meet someone at a conference who kind of shows you things that you had imagined, but had concluded didn't actually exist, do exist. Right. Um, intellectually uh, sexually energetically it was like wow i didn't think this was possible right and it is right uh and if there's one person i can feel this way with there must be others which means so it's and it it's kind of a return to where you had been 10 years earlier 15 years earlier yeah in terms of re it's like you're re-envisioning your life the way you had originally envisioned it. 100%. Yeah, it's not like I was inventing something new. I was like, oh, right, that like I, I that 16-year-old, I remember her. That's, okay, now we're back on track. You know, we got diverted there. So this was a big, there. long detour. It was. Um, it was a very big, long detour. Uh, yeah, there. It's, I talked to Aaron about this a lot, how... I think there are some relationships that last for a really long time, but you like you don't really know what happened. It's like some weird stagnancy, like you don't learn and grow as much. And then there are some relationships that last like a couple months and you feel like you've grown leaps and bounds. And I feel like my marriage was just this weird pause button. Um, granted, there were you no know, I could talk about, you know, the different things now that I'm grateful occurred within that period of time. Um, and I think I had to go so far off the path, you know, who knows what would have happened if this didn't occur, but I had to go so far off the path to make me feel so passionately about the path that I was on, Mm. um, the right one and to help other people get off the detour, you know, um, which brings us back to why you started your podcast. Right. Yeah. So after I met this person, I very quickly knew I had to get a divorce. I, there was really no negotiation or thought around it. And it was difficult because we had gotten married seven months prior. We had, we bought this house and renovated a house. And, um, I basically just exited out of all of it. And, uh, I think at first I was 
like running on adrenaline of, oh my God, I'm free. I can do this other thing. And this is like the, my life is going to be so amazing and blah, blah, blah. And like, no problem. I can just, you know, my husband will give me the house and I'll just go back to living my life, but without him. And like, it'll be great. Uh, and that didn't happen. Thank God. You know, it was, it was a wildly traumatic experience. Um, I, he refused to give me the house. So I moved back in with my mother. I had struggled with a lot of health issues for my whole life. Um, but they flared up worse than they ever had before at this period of time. I decided I needed to stop seeing this guy who I'd met at the conference because I realized if I kept distracting myself in this way that I would never learn anything. Um, and so I got my own apartment for the first time in my adult life at 28. And where was that? <laughs> in Topanga. <laughs> um, and, uh, yeah, I mean, I don't, it was, you know, a dark night of the soul, I guess is how I describe it. I felt like I died in a way the person that I was, the person that I was trying to be. Yeah. The person I was trying to be, it just, it was a, I mean, it was just a spiral of grief and awakening and dying and awakening again. It was just so many things were happening in that period of time. I just, I, I came to terms with my childhood and all of the ways in which like my relationships with my parents, um, sort of provoked the types of relationships I was in as an adult, both romantically and in my friendships. Um, learned about like what boundaries were for the first time uh, and uh, developed, like learned what spirituality was. And it was just like one thing after another, after another, after another. Um, in that space, I was, yeah, just like, I felt like I had buried 15 years of opinions and passions and goals and feelings that all sort of like came out of the closet in a way. Mm. I just felt consumed by creativity and desire and I I had to put that somewhere. Um, this, this awakening. Yeah. Know. Yeah. And one of the places I put that I decided was going to be a podcast. So what was happening with your, your health issues? Um, yeah, so I guess yeah, I struggled with health issues since I was a baby. Um, a lot of digestive stuff. And uh, like up until I was uh, 20, I would go, go like a week without taking a shit. And I just thought that was normal. Like that was just my life. Um, and it was a big problem when I was a baby. Like my mom had to take me to tons of doctors and stuff. It was really bad. Uh, and then that the digestive stuff sort of morphed into skin stuff. So like acne. And um, but mention there was an exception, right? There was a time. Oh yeah, when it all went away. Yeah, I moved to Amsterdam in my junior year of college, and all the digestive stuff went away, which. I, at the time, thought was, I guess, the quality of food in Europe versus America. Um, but what I think in retrospect, looking back, I think 
that year was a little window of myself again. Mm. I was, first of all, I was away from my family and parents and any of that toxicity. I had left my first boyfriend back in the U.S. and I had decided, I had gone to college thinking I wanted to be an actress. Uh, And then around this period of time, and going to Amsterdam, I decided, no, I want to study gender and sexuality. And so I was studying gender and sexuality in Amsterdam. Like, everyone was cool. I was totally myself. Plus, yes, the food was probably better quality. I was, like, working out. I was just I was just healthy in every way possible, and especially psychologically healthy. And then I went back home, and all the health problems came back. Right. Um, so digestive issues and you said it morphed into acne skin stuff. Yeah, that, um, that started a bit later. I never had acne as a teenager. Uh, and then around the time that I left my first relationship and met this guy that I ended up marrying, I also went off birth control in this period of time. I can't definitively say what caused what, when, and how, um, but yeah, I started I started struggling with acne, and uh, that lasted throughout my twenties. And I would say, in a scale of like one to ten, ten being the worst, it got up to like mm, seven at a point, and that was really debilitating. Um, and then it got better, and this was around the time I got married. My skin was better. Like I I tried. I mean, I did every diet imaginable took every supplement saw every doctor like i did every every possible sort of natural thing and you were pretty into the paleo stuff you had a food blog and you were pretty keyed into cutting edge research yes 100 percent. yeah that started i started eating a paleo diet when i was i think it was the year i came back from amsterdam because all the health problems had come back and i was Mm -hmm. like oh maybe this will help um, so yeah, I was very, I was, ba- I was doing everything you could possibly do, <laughs> you know, that was right and natural and it wasn't really, nothing really made much of a difference. Like I could never, it just didn't make a difference. Um, and I just, so I kept just getting stricter and stricter and more frustrated and more frustrated. And then finally, I don't know, it, it got, it got better. It was around the time I got married and, um, then once I decided to get divorced, um, I was also like around that time, like the skin got 95% of the way better, but I was like being perfection, a perfectionist about it. I was like, well, it could be even better than that. So I started working with a naturopath who did all these tests and decided to put me on a parasite cleanse. Don't go on a parasite cleanse when you get a divorce. That's the wrong time to do like daily coffee enemas. Uh, yeah, so I was like stressing my body out at a time when my mind was the most stressed I think it had ever been. Um, and you know, it's hard to talk. There's another thing that's hard to talk about. This is like the most vulnerable podcast episode ever. Because um, acne doesn't really describe what happened. Yeah. Um, it's like. My from from nothing, it went from nothing to my entire face, like my entire all my cheeks covered in cystic painful acne in 10 days. Um, it's like some kind of biblical curse. Yeah. You yeah. Know? It's like a, a punishment from the gods. Right. Something. And here and here, this punishment from the gods mm. comes once I decide 
I'm not gonna live this life anymore. I'm gonna be myself and do what I want. It felt like, are you fucking kidding me? Like, this is supposed to be the time that I'm, like, celebrated and I should be, like, showered with gifts or something, not deformed. Um, (laughs) What is going on? Come on, God. (laughs) Um, Yeah, so I... That was horrific. And... Um... That was, I mean, that's mostly what was going on those couple years. I was severely traumatized by that. And, you know, even it's like, okay, even if this acne goes away, I'm going to be scarred for the rest of my life. Like, I'm, you know, I had to really come to terms with the extent to which my identity or value was based on my appearance. That was a huge thing. Um, I stayed inside i literally saw like maybe one person aside from my therapist for i don't know 20 months or something crazy what did your therapist think about all this the skin stuff in particular yeah well it was pretty we both understood she understood i understood relatively quickly that this was at least prominently a psychological and emotional response and and i don't know necessarily if like the acne in and of itself was an expression of the stress i was under i think that's part of it but what i sort of see is that it was a it was a cleanse of sorts that my body Mm. was basically eliminating toxins that i had held on to for my whole life Right. So the reason that my skin broke out at this time was because at this time in my life was the exact right time for me to be able to deal with that. You know, I had mm. my own place. I was mature enough. Mm. I was inquisitive enough. I was reflective enough. I was dedicated enough. I wasn't with someone who was going to shame me around it. Like I needed to stay inside. <laughs> you know, I needed to be with myself. And I needed to figure out who I was and I needed to eliminate any and all toxic patterns from my life. And uh, it it went from being just totally frustrated and horrified to kind of grateful because I thought if this went away tomorrow, this period is so painful that I might just go out and distract myself. Um, and not do the work that I need to do. Um, so so it sort of imposed solitude on you. Yes. Because you were ashamed to be seen in public. Yeah. 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 Um, and also, you mentioned the conditions that allowed this to happen. Another one was that you had a job where you could work at, at home, home alone. Right. Yeah. I, so it makes me wonder... And that's such an interesting way of thinking of it. Like, you create space in your life for something to happen, and then it happens. It's as if your body were just waiting for the conditions to drag you into solitude for a while. Yeah, totally. And and I think I also, in this period of time, became aware of how much I had ignored my body before. Even though you were obsessed with diets and stuff. Right, right. But the point was, like, it's not the food and the exercise isn't the issue, Anya. Go look at other parts of your life, which I was refusing to do. You can't, like, out-supplement 
a stressful life. It's just yeah. not going to work. But I kept doing the same thing. You know, it's like, isn't that the definition of insanity? Like doing the same thing over and over and expecting, expecting a different result. Yeah. And so I was like, oh, yeah, let me eliminate another food group. Like that'll work. No, you've like eliminated all food and you're eating grass basically. Like, and you're still fucked up. Um, so, uh, yeah, I, there was a point within this process that like I remember I met someone at some festival at some point the skin was much better but still not great and she did I don't remember what she, it wasn't Reiki but it was like one of those like energy craniosacral I don't know and I was studying astrology at the time so we decided I would give her an astrology reading and she'd give me whatever one of these things were and uh, we talked about this health thing and I remember saying to her, like, it became pretty clear to me that my skin stuff is going to go away when I know and trust myself enough to not need this physical sign that something's wrong. So, you know, mm. once I know myself and trust myself enough and I'm better in touch with my own intuition... I don't need acne to tell me something's wrong because I'll just know before. Mm. And I, uh, yeah, eventually I just kind of felt a bit of calm about it. Like this is going to go away and dissipate when it's supposed to. And the last, I can't keep fighting this. I can't keep blaming myself and hating myself. And like at some point I just had to let go and be in the flow of whatever was going on. And it took a long time for it to go away. So do you see it as, as like an alarm that your body yeah. was sending you? Like, hey, hey, wake up. You're doing this wrong. Yeah. You're not listening. Yeah. And and if if you had listened earlier, the alarm would have been quieter. Right. Yeah, I think so. Um, I think it was a lot of different things, but eventually once it like got good enough to where I could go outside, but it still wasn't going away. Yeah. That, that's very much what it felt like it, it was like, uh, you know, <laughs> it would react to stress in a way that I couldn't deny. It yeah. became very clear that it was connected to anxiety and stress. Um, Casilda always talks about how the skin is a mirror of what's going on inside. Yeah. And she's very against treating anything with like topical um uh what's the word like retinoids and yeah the well the drugs like they're oh, hormonal yeah. drugs that you put on a rash that'll make oh, it go away oh, in yeah, a day yeah, yeah. you know um but you know she said like no you don't want it to go away in a day you want to <laughs> deal with what's causing it you right. know it's and yeah you know, it's, i mean and i, I think this became <laughs> very hard as well because my career at the time I and mean, one I was doing a lot of marketing and like food photography for natural brands but I also had this health and wellness blog where uh -huh. I was basically saying like if you eat well enough and treat your body well enough that your health problems won't go away and what I realized was that my health problems I'm pretty sure were 95% psychologically determined and I can't do this anymore. I can't lie to people anymore. The, you know, I ate, I could eat pizza or a strict paleo diet and nothing really makes that much of a difference. That's not the issue. Like maybe I'll feel a little better if I eat cleaner food. Fine. But that's not what's causing this and eating better and taking more supplements is not going to help. 
and I, I also started to realize I was friends with a lot of these these health bloggers. They're all super sick. Like, yeah, sure, I think food helped them a lot in getting a little better. But the amount of these people that I knew that were like still hardcore struggling with like autoimmune conditions and skin issues and hormonal issues. It, I, I, I couldn't in my right mind tell people anymore <laughs> that food and supplements were going to solve their health problems. And I realized that the industry I think I was in was also perpetuating that lie. And what's really going on is that we have a ton of unprocessed trauma. We don't know how to grieve. We're, we don't have valuable, meaningful communities. We're in shitty relationships. And we're distracting ourselves with like paleo muffins. Like I can't do this anymore. <laughs> so, <laughs> Which, uh, let's be clear, we're not saying processed foods are good we're not saying that there aren't serious health problems associated with eating the shitty typical american diet but if you've been sick for 10 years and you've eaten super clean and done everything physically that you could do and there's still a problem there's probably something else going on for sure yeah and and in fact that's where i would look first i mean You know, there's a there's a catchphrase in there somewhere, you know, uh, unprocessed traumas as bad as processed <laughs> foods or yeah. something, you know, yeah. something like that. I mean, there, it, yes. it's if definitely, not worse. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah, for sure. Yeah. So that was part of like my it wasn't just that my emotional relational life was kind of ending, but also my career. I, I had right. to stop. <laughs> Right. So it was really like you were a fucking hypocrite. On back all to counts, the drawing board. Yeah, it was really embarrassing. <laughs> uh, uh, yeah, it sucked. It sucked. But here, here's the thing, people. Here, here's <laughs> a little advice from Uncle Chris. Here, nobody expects you to have it all figured out when you're 27 years old. Give yourself a fucking break. Yeah. That's the 20s are when you make all your fucking mistakes, or at least the big ones. Hopefully. <laughs> yeah. And if you don't make them in your 20s, you're going to make them later and it's going to hurt right. worse. Yeah. And that the, the flow and stream of that river just gets stronger and stronger and stronger. Right. And that current is going to suck you That's right. Suck you and there harder. are going to be other people. You're going to have kids. You're going to be married for 20 years. You're going to be further down your career, you know, much more to lose, much harder to start over. Yeah. You know, it's like walking, you know, little kids fall over all the time, but it doesn't hurt because they're close to the ground. They're fine. It's when you're six feet tall, you don't want to be tripping and falling. That's when you'll break your fucking hip. Make your mistakes when you're young. Yeah. Don't be ashamed. Fuck it all up. Just don't get pregnant or get anyone else pregnant. Yeah. Yeah. I also, I just did this whole rant on my podcast. I mean, at the time, (laughs) this is like so embarrassing, but within weeks of this, like this bad shit occurring, I literally went on Google and was like, it like resources for the worst time in your life, like terrible keywords, but nothing came up. And I didn't, I like search for podcasts. I was trying to find resources of like, I don't know what to do. Like I, this is the worst pain I've ever been in. I know I need to be here, but I need help. I need support. I need guidance. And I couldn't really find a lot. It was challenging. Um, and so part of the podcast was, 
I'll be that for someone else who's going through this. You know, I'll be a community from afar for mm. someone who's entering into something like this. Uh, but also I think it's, you know, when we, I agree, I think we need to give ourselves you know, a lot more credit and cut ourselves more slack for making these mistakes in our 20s. But I think the older we get and the longer we go without coming to terms with this stuff and without living authentically, we're not only fucking up our own lives, but we're also sending the wrong message to someone who's younger than us. Right. You know, like what what might have happened if instead of being surrounded by 10 people in my life who are all living <laughs> miserable lives, it doing jobs and in relationships they didn't like, what if I was surrounded by 10 people that were doing cool shit, you know, who were doing weird things, who who could be a different type of resource or mentor for me. Right. Who were modeling authenticity. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So I, it's like, there's almost this anger that I feel now of like, not only are you messing with your own life, but you're, you're messing with someone else's. Yeah. You're misleading the youth. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, before we move on from this, and I know you're probably desperate to do it, <laughs> I'm, I'm, but but honestly, I I admire you uh, for the way you've dealt with this stuff. So I don't want to just glance over it because I think it's really valuable. The trip you took, can you talk about that? Like by myself when I was traveling, yeah. Um, yeah, I the <laughs> I had to do something. I guess I um. I don't remember when this was. It was pretty early on. I really always loved camping and being outside. And I was pretty much like in a totally depressive state around my skin and just everything else, like living in my mom's guest room. And I'd finally gotten this apartment in Topanga and I I was kind of losing my mom, my mind at my mom's house and I needed to do something I needed to get out even it was like I was gonna move in two weeks but even that was just too much so yeah I just went and like bought all my own camping shit for the first time and I first I went on multiple trips it wasn't like one long one it was multiple relative kind of shorter ones um but yeah I went to Big Sur for the first one and then later in the summer it was the eclipse in 2017 and I took a road trip uh from LA up into Yellowstone and then like was that this trip no this was up I went up to Idaho Idaho Falls um just north of Idaho Falls where I saw the eclipse I don't remember where I went a ton of different places I went to Yosemite for the first time I'd never been there uh and then pretty much that was like a three-week trip and then as I'm driving home from that trip I decide I need to go on another trip so a week later I left and did another one and yeah, I just took solo road trips uh, pretty much as often as I could. And again, I worked for myself, so that was relatively um, easy to plan. And that was powerful for a lot of different reasons. I think just being in nature is extremely healing. I think I once said to my therapist, like, I don't know, after going on these trips, I feel like even if I don't find any friends, I don't have any relationships in my life, if I can just sit amongst the trees, I'll be okay. Hmm. It just felt like so comforting. And 
I felt so clear uh, on those trips. And it was uh, one of the many ways that I figured out who I was because, you know, whether you're living alone or traveling alone, you get to make all the decisions about how you do something like that. So mm-hmm. that in and of itself was really freeing. Um, so, yeah, so I did a lot of those and I had never traveled like that alone before. And uh, it became, I became addicted to it in a way. Mm. It just felt so good. And it was it was hard because I still had my face looking like, you know, it was being blown up. So it was like awkward to be at a campsite when someone was over there. What's someone going to think? Or like, you know, I stayed at a couple hotels and had to go up to the desk. And like that was all really hard. Uh, and I think had I been totally healthy, I probably would have like met a bunch of people. <laughs> but that's not what these trips were about. It was just about me like remembering myself. Hmm. Um so how did it go away? The skin stuff? Yeah. Uh, so uh, eventually the skin stuff was like, it got okay enough to where, like I said, I could still go out. There was this weird middle period of like, it wasn't horrific, but it still wasn't great. It was still kind of controlling my life in a way. And it was moderate and I was still taking a ton of supplements and I was still pretty strict around my diet. And at a certain point I just thought, you know, I'd rather have moderate skin issues and just eat whatever I want and not have to worry about taking like 20 supplements a day than having moderate skin issues and being really strict about my diet and having to take 20 supplements a day. Plus, eventually when I I had this little like an old person the little like vitamin cases for every day of the week like organized Mm -hmm. anytime I and I was taking supplements three times a day and anytime I'd walk up or like hold on to that pill case I felt nauseous and like anxious like I, I your body's talking to you yeah so at some point I just said you know what Let's see what happens if I just stop everything. Mm. And I mean, like, no supplements. You're, I hadn't regularly drank a beer in 10 years. I, you know, wasn't eating bagels or pizza or, you know, wasn't eating basically gluten or dairy at, or alcohol. And I just said, fuck it. Like, let's see what happens. And my health got better and better and better and better. Uh, until it totally went away. And that definitely took a long time. It was like I stopped taking the supplements and all that maybe January of 2019, and I would say not until maybe December of 2019 do I really feel like it was not there anymore. Hmm. Um, And uh, I... You know, I I don't think I, to be clear, I don't think I got better because I stopped taking supplements, but I think I got better because one, I was able to release the anxiety around the supplements and the diet. And two, I was living the life I wanted to live and I didn't need to be worried and anxious and fearful anymore. And I had, you know, eliminated a ton of toxic relationships from my life and was doing something I felt passionately about. And there was no longer the disconnect between my inner identity and my outer 
life. They were completely aligned. Yeah. Yeah. I wonder how many health conditions are just that, that the lack of alignment between the inner and outer life. Yeah. You know, and, and when we ignore those warnings from our bodies and our souls and our spirits and whatever, we ignore the dreams, we ignore the anxiety, we learn not to hear it. Yeah, exactly. And that's like, I don't know, it's like a pilot learning not to pay attention to his instruments. That's not going to go well. No, I had no idea what intuition intuition felt like. I had no idea how to trust myself. Anytime like any crazy thing happened in my life, I remember saying out loud, I don't know what I think versus this person thinks. I don't know what I think versus the world. I have I I'm not mm. listening. I have no connection to my inner knowing anything. I I'm Yeah, I remember you saying something about moving to that place in Topanga, your first mm. apartment alone yeah. and everything you did, you had to sort of stop and say, wait a minute, do I really want to do this? Yeah, I asked myself why about everything from like, why do you wake up at this time? You know, are you the type of person that washes their dishes at night or in the morning? (laughs) That was a big one. (laughs) It is a big one. I was really stressed out. I don't like washing my dishes at night. Like, I'll deal with that in the morning. And it was great in the morning. I put some music on. I'm making my coffee. I wash the dishes. But I assume, like, when you were married or living with the guy, he was like, no, no, do it at night. Right. Yeah, and then I was living with my mom, so it was, like, her rules. It was always someone else's rules. It was, I asked myself, why am I doing this? About, why are you wearing that? Why are you seeing that person? Why are you talking to that person? Why are you working those hours? Why are you going to bed at this time? Hmm. I mean, every little thing. uh, Yeah. (laughs) That's interesting. I've always felt like it's very important for people in their 20s to live alone. Or even just like live, like have a room in a shared house. Right. You know what I mean? But where you're not glomming, you're, you're not part of a relationship where the other person is determining how things work. Yeah. Um, because as you say, you, when do you get a chance to figure out how you want things to work? Right. If you're, yeah, it's, it's a And that's where thing. like it becomes like, a lot. I, I want my own place. I want, yeah. What, what does a place look like that I live in? Right. What you know? Is yeah. it messy? Is yeah. it not messy? Is it what colors are on the wall? What kind of furniture is there? Right. You really have to experience that before you know it. Right. And I think someone like me, which I think a lot of people who is very attracted to relationships and partnership, because I'd never done that work before, because I didn't know when I like to wash the dishes or what I like to hang on the wall or what TV show I like to watch, yeah. it became a lot easier to just do what the other person was doing. Right. And that that's what kept happening is I just had basically no identity and I was just fitting into someone else's life. Uh, and I, you know, well, I didn't know any different. Like, okay, yeah, sure, whatever you're doing, that sounds fine. Mm. Um and so it wasn't until I, I figured those things out for myself, could I go into a relationship and be like, does this align with me or not? You know, does yeah. this allow me to be myself or not? I couldn't even ask myself that question before. I wouldn't know the answer. Yeah. I mean, listening to you describe that is sort of simultaneously astounding to me. And yet, because it's so different from my own life, right? I, I mean, I lived alone 
I can't even tell you how many times and how many places and, um, and traveling alone also is, I think of revelatory in that sense. Like, Hmm, I could go North. I could go South. I could go East or West and, you know, totally up to me. There's no outside influence here. It's very illuminating. Um, I was, I was just saying it's, it's so, uh, kind of, alien and bizarre to me but on another level i know that that's that's the experience that's shared by many 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 people i think especially, especially women, women. Yeah. <laughs> yeah especially yeah. women yeah yeah but also men i mean think about how many men are living in a house that you know the man is doing his part maybe all or at least half to pay for it financially and you know, take care of the yard or whatever bullshit. But the entire inside of the house is what the woman wants. Right. She wants everything painted white, so it's all white. She wants that kind of sofa. Okay, yep. baby, whatever you want. It's your house. I think so many men are living in some woman's house. Oh, yeah. Yeah, that's always kind of weird. Yeah. <laughs> when you go into someone's house. And then house. it's like, and then there's like, oh, that's his man cave. Yeah. And that's like a pathetic, yeah. you know, shameful, yeah. oh, there's one room where, that can be the way he likes things to be. And it's a yeah. mess. I need to go in there when he's not around yeah. and clean it up because he's just such a pig. Like, what the yeah. fuck? Well, I also, I don't, I think this is relational, sure. I mean, I was thinking also like sororities and fraternities. Like, I actually think culturally speaking, uh, we're prevented from individuating and having any sort of an authentic identity. I think that's baked into the culture in a way. Yeah, and yet we're all fractured and and we're all alone. Like you, yeah. you get to live alone when you're like seventy, right? You know, <laughs> all your friends die and you get don't have any money. That's when you get to live alone when yeah. when it's the last thing in the world you need or want. Right? Yeah, it's sort of you know you you're you retire and then you can live the life you want, you know, but you have to wait all that time to live someone else's life, to follow the steps, to do what the culture expected of you. And then you can be yourself and dye your hair purple and do whatever you want, you know, (laughs) Uh, in your seventies. Yeah. Let's get out that purple dye. Yeah. 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 Very strange. Very strange trajectory. Okay, so then you said, let me start a podcast. <laughs> yep. <laughs> uh, yeah. Um, which is not, I mean, we're, you know, we're laughing, but I mean, you went through so many serious shit. You went through, uh, you know, I don't, I don't know, I, I don't want to... Um, we have a friend who's doing her PhD work on white shamans and yeah. sort of, what's, what's her handle on Instagram? Steve the shaman. Oh yeah. She has like a satirical <laughs> very funny. identity. So I don't, I don't want to like go overboard, but she's about to be in my podcast too, actually. Oh, okay. <laughs> she's great. Yeah. Um, I don't want to go overboard, but you know, that was a, that was a death and a rebirth. Yeah. That was a. On so many levels, yes, you know, physically, emotionally, relationally, economically, professionally. Yeah, I mean, holy fuck. Yeah, we have a friend, former Mormon Kevin, who was also on both of our podcasts, uh, and he described it when he decided he couldn't be a Mormon anymore and like needed to, you know, come to terms with the lies he'd been telling himself and living. He's a techno guy, and he said, you know, I had to put myself in an open source state. 
Right. And I thought that was such a great way to explain that process because you're, I mean, I felt like I like cut my skin open down my entire body and just opened it up. Like all my organs were taken out. Like, okay, it was the most vulnerable period of time ever. But you have to do that if you're going to reconstruct anything. And that process was, it was both devastating and also probably the most beautiful thing I've ever been through. It's funny. I, I have always felt kind of disdainful of the military thing about, you know, boot camp. We break you down, down and yeah. build you back up, you know, and a better man. And like, fuck you. You know, yeah. I don't need anybody breaking me down. But there is a grain of truth in the idea that a transformative experience or a period of your life does include things falling apart and acknowledging that they've fallen apart and that you've yeah. like hit the bottom and you're lost and then putting them back together and but in a different way yeah and you don't know what that way is going to be i mean that's like i think my dad i just solely trusted my dad in the situation who i would just call him like I, there were times where i was just like in a fetal position sobbing on the floor for no joke three hours at a time like i just was completely incapacitated and I would call him and just be like, I don't, like, what the fuck is going on? Like, what what am I doing? And he just kept saying, like, you're in the heart of the tunnel right now. There is no light. But I promise you, I've been there before. I've been in that tunnel. Eventually, you're going to see the light. And it's going to be super dim at first. And then it'll get brighter. But, like, it is there. I promise you it's there. I know that you're... It's just pitch black right now. Um, and I I just trusted that because at the time to just live in the pitch dark <laughs> was horrifying. Um, I mean, and also profound. Like, I don't I don't I want to definitely distinguish between like a, a process of grieving and just like straight up depression because they're very different. And I think it was in those periods of time that I was the most experiencing the most sadness that I also learned what gratitude meant truly for the first time like the world was both the most painful and the most beautiful thing simultaneously yeah um so that was very you know uh, easy in a way to hold on to because both things were kind of coexisting for me your dad if I remember correctly also advised you to go to therapy a lot like yeah really take it seriously yeah it was when I was still living at my mom's house and um this was when I think I was probably the most depressive I was within this whole process within those first eight weeks or so and uh I remember I was like talking to some sort of like intuitive health coach or, like, or something intuitive nutritional therapist I mean I was like you need to go to therapy and I was like I'm seeing I'm talking to this and he's like no like that's not acceptable that's not good enough uh you need to go to see an actual therapist you need to leave the house and do this i know you're horrified about your skin but you have to do this and you can't just go once a week you have to go two to three times a week and i'll help you pay for it um so and you know and he not only advised me it's true i mean i'd been in, in and out of therapy for a long time for my whole life and i i think we we didn't get very far. I don't really think I understood. I think I thought therapy was like 
uh, a way to practice my um, man- manipulative side or like a way to convince someone that I was okay. Mm. It was like, if I can convince this professional that I know what's up and I'm living the life I should be and I don't have any issues, then like, all right, like on to the next. I, I don't, I didn't understand anything about what therapy was supposed to be. Um, so I decided to go to therapy three times a week. And um, I also decided again, very much based on my dad's advice, which is, he said, I, I, you should go and to see this therapist like intentionally. So what is it? that you're trying to do here. And he said, for me, what I've done in the past is that I've gone into my uh, a new therapist and I've said, hey, I'm really good at lying and I'm probably gonna try and lie to you and, you know, spin tales that are less than the truth. And I, I need you to call me on that and I'm ready to hear it. And I'll take that feedback um, to heart. And uh, that sounded very familiar to what I had done in the past. So that's what I did. I, I went into this therapist and I said, I'm ready to do whatever the fuck it is we're about to do. And I'm really intelligent and I'm really good at lying. And I've lived a whole life thus far convincing myself and other people that I'm okay. And I'm going to try and do that with you too. Or at least I'm going to try not to do it. But if I do, I want you to call me on it and I'll be ready to hear what you have to say. Um... Yeah, that was great. How did she react to that? Because I'll bet she doesn't have a lot of clients no, who've said that to her. I don't think she does either. Um, I think she, I mean, not to be like egoic, but I think she was as thrilled to have me as a client as I was sure. to have her as a therapist. I, God damn, it's like a, a university professor having a student who says, you know, I'm going to read everything you tell me to read. Yeah. I'm going to. I really want to learn from you. Yeah. It's like, Jesus, that's such a gift. Yeah, it was it was a really, really great experience, I think, for both of us um, on so many different levels. I mean, she really, you know, I, what therapy is supposed to do is that there's supposed to be this relationship that you form with someone that's going to undoubtedly mirror the way you are in every other relationship, right? Because that's who you are in relationship. The therapist is no different. So this is a a relationship in which you're going to be pulled to enact the exact same things as you would with a friend or a partner or whatever. And the therapeutic relationship is supposed to teach you that there is another way to do relationships. So, okay, you know, uh, you know, we're going to, we're going to deal with trust issues or, um, you know, some sort of sexual attraction or whatever it is. Like, you know, I'm very afraid to be honest and emotionally vulnerable with people because I don't think I was, um, totally given the, uh, opportunity to be like held in my emotional vulnerability as a child. So I kept that to myself and so I was obviously in going into this relationship with her feel fearful to do that fearful to express my emotions obviously that's who I am so I was able to practice emotional vulnerability with someone who was safe who could show me you know uh that there was another way we're being there's a we're at the end of a of a dead end road that just comes down to the reservoir and stops so occasionally people drive down this dirt road thinking they're going to find 
a boat launch or a place to camp. A place to camp and you find <laughs> us sitting here with our microphones and headphones like a couple of dorks. <laughs> hey, just a couple of dorks down here. Yeah. Um yeah, she said something really interesting to me early on um because I I had gone into her office and I was like, okay, so here I am kind of single for the first time, like kind of shaming myself about my relationship history. Like I really need to be alone and learn how to be independent and not depend on anyone and all, you know, just like this is I'm going to be alone. And I remember going in and I was like, oh, she's going to love me. Like I've got it all figured out. I'm going to tell her how I know I need to be independent and alone. So I did that. And she was like, yeah, you know, that's going to be important for you to to learn independence but actually i think what you really need to learn is that people uh you you need to learn that there will be people in your life who will love you and who you will be able to depend on so i actually think you need to learn relationships more than you need to learn independence and she said and hopefully this was probably within the first couple sessions like and hopefully this relationship with me will be the first step in in learning a different way to do relationships mm. um so anytime i like thought i had it all figured out she basically told me eh, not really um what advice do you have for someone who might be listening to this thinking uh yeah i i could benefit from therapy how how do you find a good therapist oh, yeah. and how do you know when it when you have a good therapist because it's a lot of money it's a it, shit ton of i was paying as much for investment. therapy as my rent um in los angeles yeah yeah where rent is high yeah um well i think it was it was the first time i'd ever seen someone with a phd before it had always been like a marriage and family counselor and i'm not saying those people aren't legit and can't be but i do think her psychological um aptitude was useful um I'd also always gone to see male therapists because I think I didn't know at the time, but I don't think I really trusted women. Um, so seeing a, a female therapist was intentional, actually, to do something that I felt more uncomfortable with. Hmm. Um, so that was part of it for me. I think the PhD was important. And I think going into it intentionally like that, even if you're already seeing a therapist but you have a feeling you might be kind of tricking her, thinking you're tricking her, him. Um, really being honest about like, are you calling me on shit? And then being, you know, that doesn't work if you're not willing to hear her, him or her disagree with you or ask you to see something differently. It's If you're just sitting there telling the person they're wrong... And no, this is how it actually is. And you've already thought about that. And well, what about this? And, you know, spinning just intellectual spirals around whatever feeling the person's trying to get you. You know, you have to be willing. Um, I would assume that a lot of the that a, that a good therapeutic relationship rests very much in the client's position yeah. more than the therapist. Yeah, you and I had a disagreement not long ago <clears throat> around these issues mm -hmm. um, where, and, and maybe I'm remembering it differently than you do, but I remember saying if I were a therapist, 
that if the client weren't willing to really engage, that I would reject them. Yeah. I would stop seeing them. Yeah. And that I thought that was the best thing I could do. And I thought it was unethical for me to continue seeing someone <laughs> and taking their money if they're not in that position or even close to the position that you're in, that intentional, open, ready to hear it. Go home, save your money, come back two or three years from now. Right. And you, you thought that was... Why, why well, did you think I, that I was mean, wrong? I think it's more nuanced than our discussion. I, I think... I guess because I look back at the previous therapist that I've seen, I didn't really understand what therapy was. I wasn't, I just wasn't ready to do this type of self-reflective work. But I don't think I was intentionally preventing it or, you know, uh, I don't think I was being like oh, someone forced me to be here. I don't want to be here. Kind of like that wasn't my attitude. I, I was really doing the best I can. I don't know how much progress I was making. And I do think I was to some extent using it as a way to perpetuate my bullshit, uh, which I didn't necessarily know I was doing. Um, so I just think about like if those therapists had said, hey, you know, you're really not doing this well enough or you're not doing this work that that would have been, I think, shocking and hurtful and not positive. But I think if there is, you know, I was talking to Leah about this, actually, like there are people that she sometimes sees and she's seeing people with like severe psychological issues who it's very clear nothing's happening. They're not making any progress and she'll make the recommendation that they stop seeing each other, Um, which I yeah, I think that's especially if the therapeutic relationship is actually making it worse or, Mm. you know you know, perpetuating the problem. Yeah. When, if you're taking 200 bucks a session from someone, you're making it worse unless they're like sitting on a mountain of money that they don't need. Yeah. And also, I mean, it also to me begs the question of like, I don't know, you know, how beneficial, I mean, I was seeing a therapist when my parents got divorced when I was five and I guess there's like kid therapy or whatever. You like play games and shit. Um, but I don't know. I don't know how, also, uh, most of the time, it wasn't my choice to be in therapy. Most of the time, uh, uh, something occurred and, you know, my mom recommended, I, you know, you really need to go to therapy. So maybe that was part of it. I wasn't doing it totally of my own volition. Yeah. Um, uh, so, yeah, but I guess my point was, like, I don't know how effective is therapy with a, a teenager necessarily. Unless um, they really want to be there. There's really something specific that's going on. Uh, For me, I just think I had a lot of subconscious shit that was happening and affecting my life that I wasn't aware of. There's no way that therapist is going to say, hey, by the way, this is actually what's happening in your life. I wasn't going to be ready to hear it. So I was just basically talking to someone or listening to myself talk, which I don't think was harmful. Um, but it was a very stark difference when I saw this therapist, yeah. just super different. Yeah. <laughs> Listen to that silence. It's nature. It's amazing to be in a place where if you just stop talking, there's nothing. It's so nice. Yeah. 
uh, if if uh, if people hear us sort of rustling around and stuff, it's because what you don't think about when you're looking at beautiful photos of nature, Instagram posts, fucking bugs. So many bugs. So many bugs. Although this place doesn't have mosquitoes, which is some sort of... It's amazing. But yeah. every other kind... I've got ants crawling up my pants. Yeah. I've got bees buzzing around. I got flies Bees everywhere. crawling up your pants, too. I got bees. I had a bee up my pants the other day driving down the road. Felt this kind of weird, like, hmm, what's that <laughs> sensation on my inner thigh? And then, ow! It's a fucking yellow jacket stinging me inside my pants at you 60 miles an hour. You expertly maneuvered that. Like, while driving, a bee stings your inner thigh yeah and you pull over like stop the car yeah get yeah. the bee out of your pants yeah yeah that's uh yeah i'm good in a crisis i'm kind of a fuck up you know in normal <laughs> conditions <laughs> but generally in uh extreme crisis I, I tend to get my shit together pretty quickly um so let's let's we've covered your traumas pretty well here. <laughs> yeah, thanks. It's a trip down memory lane. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, I mean, I want. I mean, there are lots of reasons I wanted to have you on the podcast, but one of them is that I, I feel like a lot of the people who listen, well, virtually everyone who listens to my podcast is the kind of person who will benefit from knowing you right from from your podcast you know like um you know we we talk about this on this trip we meet people who listen just two days ago we met someone who listens to the podcast and you know it's great woman sienna just like hey i see you're in montana come hang out and like oh okay yeah sure we'll come tomorrow turns out we're right nearby you know, she packed this picnic. We go down to the lake. We're hanging out. Then she's like, come to my house for dinner. And next thing you know, we meet her sister, her mother, her father, her brother-in-law. We're having this amazing dinner from the garden. It's just like, Jesus Christ. Yeah. How, what privilege this is to just sort of, you know, float around in the world and have these beautiful, wonderful people open yeah. their homes to us and... You know, just introduce us to their friends and their family and show us their favorite spots. It's just so fucking awesome. Yeah. I always very openly say that part of the reason I started my podcast was to because I didn't have any friends, because I didn't know where to find them. Well, you were starting your life over. Yes. You were starting yeah. a new life. And I needed, and a needed community. community. So I was right. like, well, I don't know where to go for it. So like, I'll just like pick up this megaphone and start speaking, and hopefully people come to me. Right. It worked very and well. Have. Oh, and they have. Oh, yeah. And I hope a lot of the people who are listening to this will, will also listen to your podcast. Don't leave me, please. <laughs> don't, don't replace, tangentially speaking, with... <laughs> But um, no, but seriously, and, and I think also because I know a lot of the people who listen to the, well, at least I don't know. I imagine based on emails and you know communications, I get that a lot, a big chunk of the the people who are listening to this podcast right now are probably guys in their you know twenties, early thirties, you know, closer to your age than to my age, um, and. Based on a lot of the emails I get there, and the people we've met, they're 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 really smart, open-hearted people trying to find their authentic path. Yeah. Either they're on a path right now that they know isn't right, but they don't know, 
you know, they're where you were five years ago. Like, this isn't it, but I don't know what is it. Yeah. Um, or they're starting out down a path that they think is authentic, but they're afraid and alone and feel kind of precarious and, um, and are looking for community, you know, looking for, uh, like you said, like adults who are modeling an authentic life. Um, and I think there's also a lot of something you and I share is uh, a sense of outrage at the amount of unnecessary suffering people go through um, around sexuality. So sort of circling all the way back to the Me Too yeah. thing and the <clears throat> accusations and the the anger and the um, the, the the sort of... Um, the mess that, that we create when we try to talk to each other or, or just don't talk to each other and just assume we understand each other. Or, or I think where we are now is a lot of men, like the best men, the men who are most interested in not hurting anyone mm -hmm. are also the men who are kind of most emasculated by the cultural situation they don't know how to deal with women but they're afraid to ask women because they don't want to offend them um yeah they're afraid of their own masculine impulses they're afraid they feel ashamed of desire they feel ashamed of being a sexual creature um and i think that you know, like Sex at Dawn, a big part of Sex at Dawn for me was, as a man, uh, you know, a so-called expert, being able to say to women, it's totally normal that you're a sexual being. It's totally normal that you feel these hungers and you feel you're an animal, just like men are. But I think for men, it's like more like, yeah, I'm an animal. It's mm. great. And women are like, oh, no, I don't go, you know. <clears throat> Number two, you know, like <laughs> there's just all this denial of animality in women. And it felt so good for me when women wrote to me and told me how they felt liberated by yeah. that. And and I feel like you have a similar kind of feeling toward men. Yeah. Yeah. I got a lot of those emails from men. I mean, also, yeah, this other podcast I have, Horror Poor with Aaron, um, talks more specifically about sexuality or just like that's all we talk about i guess sexuality and everything that extends off of that um but yeah I, i've always felt a lot of and i think this is because i had a father who exhibited what has i've always felt was a very healthy version of masculinity for me and i know that's a rarity that you know women get to have dads that were as fucking awesome as my dad was um but i saw him as this you know he's gay so he's in touch with his femininity and his emotions and he's sensitive and he's caring and loving but he's also hands down the bravest guy that i know you know the fact that he did what he did in getting a divorce and living authentically at the time that he did with two children and the ways that he continues to stand up for himself and to be, you know, unafraid and really put himself out there. That, you know, I just think I grew up loving men. Like, 
they saw nothing wrong with mask healthy masculinity um and that's one of the many reasons that the whole me too thing affected me so deeply but even prior to that just this hatred or distrust or disgust of men and masculinity was very upsetting to me um and i've always had the desire to have more open honest conversations with men and talk about sex in a way where like they don't feel like i'm going to cancel them or make them feel stupid or uh you know i always used to say like i oh, just talk like talk about sex like a guy it was just always like i don't know i just i had so much appreciation for men i had no reason like the whole future is female no like the future is both of us what are we doing you know masculinity's not bad there's unhealthy expressions of femininity too um so yeah i feel i feel immense amounts of empathy and around for men and curiosity around men's experience um that i don't actually think is given a lot of airtime or um yeah, they, you know, we, especially now, it's like, oh, you're a white man. Shut up. Why? That's not useful. Don't we want to, like, know why the white man came to be who he is? Like, and isn't the way we do that to maybe talk to him? I don't know. Yeah. And, and why is it any less racist and reductionist to to assume you know someone's experience because they're a white male than it is you know an asian female it's so weird right. how the same the same kind of structures that are seen as oppressive when used against one group are seen as you know justified when used oh against yeah what's the compensatory it's, injustice thing yeah, i think exactly. very much sorry i just had a ant curling <laughs> down my pants again <laughs> Um, okay, so you have two podcasts. So, the Millennials Guide to Saving the World. Like, what are some of your? Yeah. I know you hate favorites, but yeah. like, what are some episodes that you think people who want to check it out? What would be good entry points? I know the episode yeah. with your father is one of my favorites. Yeah, um, I just did one recently with. Um, there's a podcast called This Jungian Life. It's three Jungian analysts. Uh, and they're amazingly eccentric and like I just kind of wanted them to all adopt me. They're really cool. So I did it with three people, which was bizarre, but I did one with them. It was a couple episodes back um, where we talked a lot about ooh, this type of dark night of the soul from a sort of Jungian psychological perspective and individuation. And it was it was quite good. A very, very like poignantly millennial episode. Um I did one, um, God, it's so hard. What's the, is there, there's a theme, like my yeah. podcast, there's no real theme. I mean, themes right. emerge, right? um, but I didn't go into it saying, I want to talk to, yeah. you know, people who are doing this or that. Yeah. So uh, basically it is definitely themed. I wanted to have conversations about different topics, um, topics that I didn't feel like were given tons of airtime, but also not even just the topics themselves have discussions that were a lot more nuanced and even maybe taboo within that space. So, um, you know, uh, let's talk about uh, like farming. You know, I felt like the, the more conventional millennial standpoint around food was like veganism and like beyond meat. Let's like, you know, not eat meat. Um, 
that's not how I feel. And so I wanted to showcase like regenerative agriculture as, you know, the thing, the conversation, the topic we need to be focusing within that space. Um, talking about health and wellness, but looking at it from a psychological perspective, not from a what supplements we should take and what kind of workouts we should do perspective. Um, do you think death and rebirth is a central issue yes. in these conversations? Yeah, I did start to realize at a certain point after having a bunch of conversations that a lot of them did refer to this process of like basically the phoenix burning and being reborn. Um being whether it was you know regenerative agriculture or spirituality or anything this process of deconstruction and reconstruction for sure um but yeah it's like grief and spirituality and um the planet and um yeah health and wellness all these different topics sexuality certainly um but but taking a more nuanced approach and having a conversation that I don't often hear, but which I think is really important. And how do those things <clears throat> combine or fit into a millennial's guide to saving the world? Um, because I think, you know, I, uh, one interesting thing about listening to your podcast, which I always really related to and found a lot of meaning in, was this difference of being younger and realizing that there was this kind of whole life ahead of me um, amidst what feels like collapse. Um, and so whether or not, you know, if, if things are going to collapse, fine, but like, what do I kind of do in the meantime? Um, and I have no, I'm definitely not, I don't think I'm actually like going to save the world that it's kind of ironic in its title, but at the very least I felt like, if the world continues and we don't like blow ourselves up that the first step in doing something different would be to look at things differently. Mm. Um, uh, yeah. So, so if we can look at, you know, the planet, if we can look at emotions, if we can look at spirituality in a different kind of way, even if I'm not going to be alive to see how things turn out, how might that perspective or those types of conversations be passed down into future generations? Like, I, I think my life and my generation is going to be basically the, the people that are just sort of shepherding us through darkness in a way. I, I don't think I'm going to be alive to see the end result. Um Oh boy! So your whole life is going to be in the dark part of the well, tunnel. Well, kind, but kind of, and like, so, you know, yeah, and and so, what do we do in the dark part of the tunnel? What what can we practically, intentionally, productively do? Um, and, you know, I I see. I think everyone has their own path. I'm not saying that like conversations are the way to save the world, but I think discussing these things is for me very much feels like my role or at least a role that I have making it feel less scary to talk about these things in the way that I talk about them making them more widely accepted allowing young people to not feel like outsiders or feel ashamed because they don't fit into the traditional conventional definition of a triggered sensitive millennial um and yeah and, and also wondering like if we were all sort of given permission and had support 
to do what we loved and to do what felt authentic, you know, what kind of a different place might this be? I don't know. Uh, but to see people my age actually feel passionate about something, actually feel engaged in something, feel supported in something, feel challenged by something in this time is beautiful to me. Yeah. And it's fucking awesome to meet, you know, people that I interview or just meet people that listen to the podcast who we can all kind of band together and like, all right, so maybe the world is sinking. But like you say, like, let's build a lifeboat in the meantime. Um you know, that's what I'd like to do. Yeah. Um, I'm thinking of other guests you've had on. You've had the women who were uh, part of a, a group of women involved with men who had died mountain climbing. and uh, Oh, yeah. There, yeah, a couple of women who started something called the Climbing Grief Fund to basically address grief within the climbing community kind of for the first time ever because it's... <laughs> obviously very common that people die yeah so that was really cool um i've had one of my favorite authors francis weller on who wrote a book called the wild edge of sorrow about grief um uh i've talked to someone named bobby gill who works for the savory institute which is a big um an organization that uh trains people how to basically you know manage their land holistically through regenerative agriculture that was a really cool episode did you have jake and Marin on or not yet going yeah we're to? going to right yeah maybe we should this is a good time to mention uh jake oh, and yeah. Marin are, are good friends of ours really beautiful couple just uh so the kind of people we're talking about <laughs> yeah. they're young they're passionate they're <laughs> yeah. smart they bought a van they're cr- cruising around in their van and they're making a film <clears throat> about regenerative agriculture and specifically about embracing death yeah. and, and how our sort of American denial of death has warped our food system in a way that is unhealthy for us and the animals and the planet and everything else. Right. Um, and they were looking for some other people. We, I think we found them someone who can speak uh, yeah. eloquently about death as a hunter. Yeah. Yeah. So the project is called Death in the Garden. If you guys want to, I think they, I'm not sure if the website's out yet, but certainly the Instagram ca- account is there. Um, it's so perfect, right? Like millennials, like the one they're focusing on death within, like, I feel like that's a very millennial thing that it's like, well, we find beauty in the darkest you know, kind of. Well, it's like trying to grow something in soil that doesn't have any right. organic matter in right. it. Nothing's right. going to grow if right. we don't acknowledge death. You right. Know? Yeah. Um, so, yeah, they're traveling up. I think they just uh, left Northern California. They're going to be in Oregon and Washington and um, then I think uh, Montana and then headed across the country. Um <laughs> And they are still looking for, uh, I should have like my notes in front of me, but I think they're looking for people, um, anyone that works in the conventional farming space who can speak like eloquently to the struggles that might take place there um, as far as subsidies and insurance and taxes and all of that stuff. Anyone that works within like the FDA or USDA, someone that can... Um, speak to sort of like the governmental aspect of the food system. Um, Yeah, anyone else, we did find one person that's pretty um, in the hunting or fishing community that can speak to 
uh, you know, the non-conservative killing like Trump side Killing's of the, fun. Yeah, sort of the yeah. more, you know, native indigenous practices around hunting. Um, yeah, there's there's other things too, but uh, I forget what they are offhand because I'm not looking at my... I'm sorry. I just yeah, sprang that I on know. you. I, I didn't and I, like, I took detailed notes and everything. Do you want to pause and, and grab it? No. No? Okay. It's uh, very far away. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So, um, Horror Report. Yeah. That's a totally different... So, you got the Millennials Guide, interviews, conversations, yeah. uh, a whole array of people doing things that need to be done in order to continue or, or make life on Earth a better endeavor. Yeah. Horror rapport. Yeah, I don't think it's totally different. I definitely have conversations around sexuality. I forgot the one One really good one was the... the um the woman that owns the oh the madam the madam that one you in really New Zealand liked. yeah yeah that's a really good one yeah anyway so I started horror rapport with my friend Aaron because I want to talk about sexuality <laughs> so much that it would probably consume my other podcast if I did that so uh, we decided to start another podcast and we both co-host it and we'll probably have guests eventually but at the moment it's just us having conversations about different topics within the realm of sexuality so power, um, uh, uh, sexual identity, you know, heterosexuality, homosexuality, um, non-monogamy, uh, jealousy, um, sort of unpacking what the word whore means, what it means to be a sexually embodied woman. Um, I think it was both that we wanted to talk about these topics, but also that we wanted to showcase a female friendship that I like the conversations I have on my other podcast, I don't think is given much airtime. Yeah. Um, one that is non-competitive, one that is, you know, uplifting, one that is very open as it relates to issues around sexuality and is playful and unashamed. Uh, and, um, yeah, I think we're very similar. And I've certainly, you know... <laughs> hoped uh, that I would meet someone, a woman who shared a lot of these same opinions that I did around sexuality. And so when I did, it just felt like, you know, we also would have all these conversations like shit, we need to, we need to make And not just podcast. opinions, but, but also, uh, open-mindedness and, uh, lack of fear around yeah. talking. I mean, I'm going to take a little credit right now for this. <laughs> you can take credit. <laughs> all right. Because... Uh, when I met you, I like right away, I was like, oh, you have to meet my friend Aaron. She's, you guys are so similar and in really interesting, unique ways. Yeah. And before you ever met her, you guys were sending each other WhatsApp voice memos that <laughs> yeah. were like, you yeah. know, half an hour long each. Yeah. I mean, you guys, before you ever sat in a room together, it was obvious oh, yeah. that you were soul sisters. Yeah. Yes. Thank you. You can take full credit I'll for introducing credit for us. I mean, not not for being who you are, yeah. either one of you, but just for recognizing that there was this sort of Yeah, it's pretty resonance. uncanny, actually. Yeah. I remember one of the first in those messages that she left me, from the first couple we exchanged, she she said something like, I was always the sex friend. And I was just like, oh my God, I've, me too, and I've never met 
anyone else. What do you mean by sex like, friend? I was the one that everyone came to to talk about sex. Oh, okay. I, you know, not the friend not with that, benefits. Not that we were having sex, yeah, even. <laughs> um, but just like we were the person that people felt comfortable talking to about sexuality and um, were totally kind of unashamed and just curious and right. open to all sorts of different things. Right. Um, and yeah, I think, you know, for us, we both struggled with this weird issue of feeling extremely sexually embodied and that sexuality was a huge part of us, but that wasn't, that didn't mean that we were promiscuous or having a lot of sex per se. Um, and that was always kind of confusing because it was like, you're a slut, which means you're fucking a bunch of people or you're a prude and you're not. But to us, it was like, we feel so sexual, but that sexuality isn't based in actually having sex. It was more about who we were and how we saw the world and how we defined right. things. Well, um, and it almost it's almost the opposite of the conventional view in the sense that if if sexuality and eroticism is a deep and fundamental part of your identity and how you view the world as, as it certainly is for me, then there's a respect that you hold toward it that doesn't make you a prude, but it makes you much less likely to just fuck a stranger for the hell of it. Right. Yeah. You know, it's like, it's like my relationship with psychedelics. We were talking yeah. the other day. It's like, yeah. I love I mean, psychedelics are a huge part of my life. And I mean, have been. Uh, I've learned so much from them, and because I respect them so much, that's why I don't really do them anymore. Right. Um, not God. I hope that never happens with sex. But, <laughs> uh, but you know what I mean. There's yeah. a selective relationship with something that you that, that's very important to you. Yeah, yeah. It just became. You know, Erin said something I think was really she explained it really well the distinction of like there were you know girls who we were in high school with who acted like sluts but who were offended when you called them a slut and then there were girls like us who didn't act like sluts but who really liked it when we were seen as that so it was like an identity versus an action it was mm. it wasn't a performance right. it was just like no this is how we feel we feel sexual right. um which was you know is very hard especially as a young girl you know i've one of my kind of famous stories around this is that before i'd ever had sex i think all i'd done is like kiss a boy a friend of mine we had like a falling out i don't know how old we were 14 or something and her kind of last hurrah insult was and you're a slut and then a, a mutual friend of ours who was like, I think, trying to decide who she was going to remain friends with because it was like that bad of a, mm. a a breakup between us asked this other girl, like, why is Anya a slut? And she said, oh, because she wears tank tops, spaghetti strap tank tops. Mm. And that was a weird moment because it was like, oh, OK, you just tried to insult me. That was like your greatest insult. But also... I feel like you saw something in me or recognized something in me that I feel really kind of profoundly. And I knew it wasn't that I was a slut because I was going and often having sex. I hadn't even had sex. Um, so it was this weird moment of like honest, real identification and that this thing that I felt internally that people might be, it might be so real that people are picking up on it. And that was a really fascinating insight when I was young. You're still wearing tank tops. So many tank tops. Slut. <laughs> Thank you. 
<laughs> well, that seems like a good <laughs> note to end on. Uh, you always ask people to name a, a book or a few books. Yeah. Uh, I, I don't do those formulaic things on my podcast, but name a book or a few books that you think oh, people Jesus. would uh, benefit from reading. Never but, did I think this question would be turned around <laughs> on me. <laughs> well, the drama of, of The Gifted oh, Child. Oh, yeah, that's is, amazing. You mention that often. Yeah. Uh, drama of the Gifted Child. I would also say the other book I mentioned, The Wild Edge of Sorrow by Francis Weller, was really important in my life um uh, i could just oh um actually braving the wilderness by Brene brown is Mm. really fucking awesome about individuation and like the courage to be who you are Mm. um in a world that tries to prevent that and also about just like the power and courage of vulnerability um yeah fuck now I feel badly for asking people this. I always feel badly, though. That's the thing. I always put people on the spot. It's funny too because you're you're the only person I know who refuses to answer the question. What is your favorite? Like, no, don't do that. I don't do that. I yeah. don't do favorites. Yeah. And then you ask people like, Oh wait, oh. can I say more? Okay. <laughs> uh, this guy Robert A. Johnson was one of my oh, favorite authors, yeah. and he has um, three books actually that I recommend, but they're all like seventy-five pages. Uh, one is called Inner Gold which is about psychological projection, but looking at it from a positive point of view. So how do we project our positive qualities on, onto other people, qualities mm-hmm. that kind of like our inner God that we're not ready to embrace within ourselves and how might that help us not project onto people we're in relationships with. Um, and then he also has a book uh, called He and another one called She, which looks at healthy, mature, masculine and feminine expression through the lens of mythology. Yeah. Um, uh, those are like I, she especially is like my version of a bible kind of i just like mm. have it with me at all times and just open to a page uh because any page that i open to something on that page is meaningful or i see it in a new way mm. or something like that and then i know you wanted to mention uh, sex at dawn and some voice <laughs> right didn't you yeah shit yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Uh, the two podcasts are A Millennial's Guide to Saving the World and Whore Rapport. Which is R-A. Not, not yeah. report, not but cl- rapport. Yeah. There, there's great rapport between those whores. <laughs> uh, yeah. Highly recommended, both of them. I was a guest on A Millennial's Guide yeah. not long ago. Yeah. Episode yeah. 50. 50. Oh, yeah. the big 5 yeah. All right. I'm going to release this right away. Okay. Uh, next time we have Wi-Fi, which will be in a couple of days here. Um, so I'm not going to... There's no intro. There's just whatever I said at the beginning <laughs> five hours ago. And I'm going to play out with a song instead of doing the Carsey Blanton thing. Uh, sometimes I skip it. Is there a song that you think we should... See, I just put you on the spot God, with the books. Now I'm going to do it with the a song. Hell? Well, what if we did the In Border Country song? Oh, okay. Because you, you yeah. brought that song to my attention, and yeah. it came through one of the yeah. women in that grief group that you it's talked about. Not quite. So it actually came through one of my close friends, Kestrel, who I also had on the podcast, uh-huh. psychotherapist and astrologer. Um, she was very involved. She connected me with the people from the Climbing Great Fund, but she was very in the climbing community when she was younger and her first love i don't even know his full name this is so terrible johnny something um 
this uh, man who was basically like her first relationship, a really prominent person in her life, uh, died in a climbing accident in an avalanche. And he, uh, this was after they were not together anymore, but obviously still profoundly impacted her. Um, And he was a writer and he wrote a poem the night before he died, I believe, on the mountain. And I think it was a weird situation, uh, um, not giving the story. <laughs> well, see, I've been sitting on this song for like two months since you, you played it for me the first yeah. time. It's an amazing song. Yeah. And, and we've been like, you know, trying to get the full story, but we've had trouble getting uh, it. And so we're just going to go with what we think we know and apologize if we've gotten anything wrong. So he wrote this, um, this poem, I believe the day before he died. And, uh, then he died the next day in an avalanche and I believe they were like done with the climbing trip they were going to get their gear it was some just like awful freak accident that probably could have been avoided but it wasn't and several of them died I believe Uh, and then their belongings were recovered and within their belongings were Johnny's you know journal and there was this poem which explicitly seems to say that he knew how that he was going to die it's a description of dying in an, an avalanche. avalanche yeah without a doubt and so then some friends of of his who are in this band the paper stars i believe wrote an entire album called border country in honor of him and i think many of the songs have excerpts from his writing in them but border country is specifically pulling from this poem uh and it's yeah kind of fucking crazy um and I, and I think just, you know, I've talked about when I had um, uh, those the two women from the Climbing Grief Fund on the podcast, and I talked to Kestrel about this when she was on my podcast as, as well, but like this kind of, like, what do you do with that kind of knowing or premonition or, or intuition about something? It's like, we I think we sometimes know things and feel things, and there is nothing really to do about it, it, it which is hard, I think, as... <laughs> people or at least western people because we yeah. want to control something or apply a meaning to it or um but it's just kind of fascinating there was another man who recently died in a really freak climbing accident and his girlfriend said that he'd often awaken from nightmares in which he envisioned himself dying in a climbing accident in the exact way that he ended up dying um so it's i never really understood climbing to be honest um but in sort of, I think, thanks to Kestrel sort of bringing me into this world, like seeing how sort of close you get to that veil between life and death and how keyed in and how in this kind of flow state, it's like very much how I feel like I was in those two years. It was like mm. all the bullshits washed away and like everything becomes crystal clear. Mm. And I think a lot of people within the climbing community enter into that space when they're climbing and live their lives in that space in many ways. Um, And I think within that space, it's like we can tap into other realms and other times in a way that the rest of us distracted working nine to five jobs, commuting, don't get the chance to. So um, I ended up after all of this and all these interviews, I did like just have feeling quite a bit of admiration and like reverence for this community and and the ways that they 
live life so vulnerably. Um, so yeah, so this song is, uh, the lyrics are Johnny's poem. His, some of the last words he ever wrote. Yeah. Crazy. It's a beautiful song. It's called Border Country and it's by the Paper Stars. Thank I hope you. that's right. More or less. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Thank you, Anya Cates slash Cots. Uh, I hope everyone will go check out your podcast and your numbers of patrons will explode after this. <laughs> we'll see. <laughs> Thanks for listening, folks. We'll catch you next time. Well, here he comes to take me down Take me down with the thundering sound And here she comes, arms spread wide Calling me back from border country Well, inch by inch, step by step Shadows running in both directions I'm cowering down from the echoing sounds Bringing us face to face Tighten my boots, make a run Turn to see that my thoughts are tied Standing still in the blazing sun Nowhere to hide Here in border country Well here it comes to take me down Take me down with the thundering sound Here she comes, arms spread wide Calling me back from border country Well, inch by inch, step by step Shadows are running in both directions Wishing for my mama and my sweetheart's delight Grabbing at the earth, holding on tight Wishing for my mama and my sweetheart's delight Grabbing at the earth, holding on tight Wishing for my mama and my sweetheart's delight Here in border country Bye.
out of border country.